0: Let's pray as we stand. Almighty God, we come to you with all kinds of different questions, different issues, different experiences of our life, but we know what it is to want you. And we ask that as we attend to your word, our wanting you would be made the more intense and the more pleasing to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Do please sit. And Barry, if we, uh, if you would, thank you. Well, there's a picture of a deer. You can see it's very obviously panting for streams of water. Well, actually, it isn't. It lives by one of the streams that feeds into the Dead Sea. Uh, and when I saw it, it was actually pretty well off for water. Uh, but at least it shows you a deer. Thank you, that's enough. <laughs> well, we all know the song, don't we? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I love you more than any other. Uh, I love you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. Well, the modern song has the singer pining for a god whom he or she loves and longs to worship. There's no particular reason for the pining, though. So I thought we'd give an outing to uh, the Tate and Brady hymn from 1696, and that older hymn is closer to the words and to the downbeat mood of the original. But it really is a mood, and there's still, even in the hymn we've just sung, no particular reason why the singer is downcast and depressed. And the truth is, it's actually rather hard to update Psalm 42 because the problem the psalmist faces is a jewish one and not a christian one and it's simply this whatever he's going through the pain of it is that he's going through it far away from jerusalem and i want to approach this psalm you'll find it on page 567 through a short series of four questions when and where and why, and who. We've got a short series of five uh, psalms to look at in our morning services, and I've chosen the ones that begin each of the five books of the psalms. So last week we had one, 42 this week, next week we'll have 73. The first question, when? It's the first of the questions that gets asked in the psalm. It's in verse verse 2. When can I go and meet with God? For the ancient Jew, there was only one place to meet with God, and that was Jerusalem, where God had declared to David that he would put his name and his house. The law of Israel declared that sacrifices would only count if they were made at the temple in Jerusalem. But the psalmist cannot get to Jerusalem for some reason. We don't know why, and it is a pain for him. In verse 4, he thinks of the role he used to play in public worship, leading the procession in the house of God. He thinks of the great throng of people, the multitude, the noise they made, the shouts of praise and thanksgiving, and the general hubbub of merriment, the festive throng it sounds so plain and ordinary, doesn't it? He, he, he just can't get on a bus. He can't get back to where God has been so real to him. And we might think that in, in centuries, when relationship with God has been inwardized, as it were, so we can or internalized, so we can sing that modern song. Even Tate and Brady, back in the 17th century, they, they get the mood right, but they, they, there's no sense of physical distance from God, we might think that that kind of physicality no longer matters. And yet I think we'd be wrong. By the fact of our being here, we probably take for granted that we can be here. But I know of at least one person who is here this morning after a long absence, and it is a thrill, a great joy to be back here on a Sunday morning. And I want to take advantage of this when question to address one challenge of the modern Christian life, at least for many of us. Life is busier than ever. Emma began her prayers by that prayer that we might learn to stop. Many families need two incomes, so both parents are out at work most of the week. It puts a strain on weekend time, and perhaps we've had to move with our work So, the wider family are far away and we need to visit them. Now, every church survey across the country shows that more and more people are dropping their church attendance, down perhaps from uh, uh, every week to two weeks in three, or even to one in two. But it's not casual. They don't do the classic other things on a Sunday, like wash the car or walk the dog. It's not a casual absence, they're away being busy, or playing host to family on visits. They're doing good things. But I still want to say, read this psalm and learn to appreciate that being with other believers matters in ways that you may not appreciate if you're the one who's absent. You may not appreciate it until you cannot do it. Of course, it's true that worship of God is something we can do every time we breathe by what we think and say and speak wherever we may be. We carry it with us in the era of Christian faith. But the throng, the shout, the festivity, the idiocy of playing submarines uh, is still special when we gather together. Perhaps in a week that's had All Saints Day in it, it's worth remembering that. Don't assume that if you're not here, it makes no difference. Whether or not an individual is missed or not, the contribution they bring will be missed. What you bring to the singing and to the throng. And if life does call you away as a family, and it does for many, I realize, then build in church attendance elsewhere. I'm delighted to know of how many who do precisely that. Now, this sounds like the kind of advice your mother would give you, doesn't it? You'll miss it when it's gone. But I regularly visit people who do miss it because it has gone. Appreciate it while you have it. Build up now the experience that will serve you well when times are leaner. The experience of God in Christ is not only an inner spiritual experience... But it's the experience of other believers with whom you are in the most extraordinary relationship of brother and sister. So count it a privilege to join them at every opportunity that presents itself. To our second question where? In his isolation, the psalmist faces much worse than simply isolation. He is uh, driven to crying aloud. Others say to him, verse 3, where is your God? He longs for water, but the water in his own life is his own tears, his food day and night, because he cannot oppose the oppression of unbelievers with the physical reminder of the presence of God. And it seems to me that this is a classic objection to faith that's worth some attention. I uh, saw someone last week, who had had to endure some pretty horrible medical intervention. And after it, one of her neighbors said to her, "'Bet you don't believe in God now.'" To which she responded, "'It wasn't God who's responsible for what happened.'" But the question was in the form, "'Where's your God now, then?' "'Your God.'" And the psalmist has the beginnings of an answer, Verse 6, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. They're all slightly different areas, but they're all way out on the borders, about as far as you can get from Jerusalem and still be within the territory of Israel-Palestine. It's not much, I'll remember you, but it's something. I can't get to Jerusalem where God's face is, where I could meet with God, But even on the far borders, I can remember. It's all still real. I don't know whether it will carry on, but each uh, psalm so far, and I've done two, um, uh, has had something rather odd about it. And this week, it seems to be this, that God is actually very much absent from this psalm. God doesn't speak. And yet, for a God who's absent, he's all over it. Living God, your God, house of God, my God, God my rock, God of my life. God is still there, precisely where he seems not to be. Where is your God? Never far away. And to that I want to add a third question, why? Verses 5 and 11, why are you so downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And in many ways, I think this is more likely to come to us as the challenge that we may face. If God is so good, why does bad stuff happen? And it's important to notice that actually, first and foremost, that is the believer's question to himself. Being a believer doesn't release us from the challenge of the why. Tim and Sue spoke of of that challenge and the uh, issues of this psalm as they faced last week's uh, nightmare, I suppose, of Daniel's sudden appendicitis. It doesn't release us from the challenge of the why. Indeed, it actually intensifies us. We do believe that God is good. So then we find ourselves with a God to whom at least we can put the question, why is this happening? Perhaps because of our childhoods when why was the question we always asked, why implies that there is a person there to answer the question more than where does. So let's make it an opportunity for a moment to consider the questions that come to us. I heard on a radio program recently that opinion polls are actually very distorting. Not necessarily about who you'll vote for, where where you'll probably tell the truth, but things like whether you like soap powder Dazzle or whatever. People don't generally lie or deceive, but they give the answer uh, that the context of being asked seems to suggest. They don't actually say why they buy Dazzle, but they say what they think will make sense to the questioner about why they buy Dazzle. And we mustn't make the same Mistake about questions to our faith. The real reason why people uh, don't follow Jesus Christ is not intellectual. I've I've got shelves of books about the questions unbelievers ask, and they do, they do ask those questions. But not a single one of those questions, and there's always a book with six questions. I could go through them every every 20 years, and a new book comes out addressing those six questions. It's not the issue. The issue why people don't follow Jesus Christ is a moral one. They don't want to face the demands of personal holiness that follow from being a disciple of the Son of God who died for sin. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, today, this morning, some of you Uh, who are very welcome guests, uh, are wondering about whether to, to pick up the challenge of following Jesus. And actually in your heart, the real question, is not the intellectual ones. It's whether you're prepared to commit your life to that bigger step. But the questions that actually get asked will nearly all be intellectual ones. Why do bad things happen to good people? Is a classic one. And we must not be fooled or derailed by that. The challenge is always to take the intellectual question that your friend has asked you and refer it back to the personal reality of Jesus Christ. Now, at one level, the right answer to that intellectual question, why do bad things happen to good people, is a close analysis of the nature of free will in a random world but not all of us will want to go there. And so we can feel threatened and uh, derailed by that. Don't be. The right answer to the problem is, I haven't a clue. Simple. I haven't a clue, but I need you to know it's a problem for me as a believer, just as much as it is for you as an unbeliever. It's bound to be a problem, because bad things do evidently happen to good people. And of course, we who are Christians feel it even more acutely because we follow the best of men and look what happened to him. What would be your answer? That's the way to take the question, to take the intellectual question and refer it to uh, the moral one. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this, but I think time allows. Um, I had a, a really weird story, um, weird thing happened to me on Friday night I was in the queue, um, for the very long queue, uh, for the beer festival, as you do, um, and uh, uh, I was with a, a bunch of guys from church, and again, as you do, we start, fell to talking about um, the nature of baptism and whether it was complete in um, uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross or whether, in fact, it needed resurrection to complete the baptism. And one of the other guys in the queue suddenly started joining in. And so, of course, these days, uh, you know, you don't, you don't need to go looking for a Bible because everyone's got it on their phones. Um, and so I looked at the, uh, the guy in the queue. He had his Bible out in his phone. And I looked at, at his, and I said, I, 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 I can't do anything with that. I, 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 we need to really to understand Romans 6, and I really need the Greek. So another phone appeared with the Greek text on <laughs> And uh, we were able to establish that the actual word in, in the Greek text at that point uh, allowed it for it both being a consecutive or a purposive clause uh, to establish exactly what's going on in Romans 6. And here we were, thinking about the Greek of Romans 6, discussing the nature of baptism, and I thought, I'm sitting, standing in a beer queue, uh, having this totally bizarre conversation with someone I've never met before, um, who was asking what denomination we were from and wanted us to be impressed that his family had got very high-quality degrees from ancient universities, and so on and so on. But there was something just a bit odd, uh, and uh, it became apparent that he no longer went to church. But he, we carried on the conversation quite a long time, and then... Um, uh, later on after we'd resolved the issues of the greek and the text and what have you i said what what stopped you going to church because he'd already said by then that he used to go well he gave an answer and then he turned back to his friends and he carried on with his life because he didn't didn't he loved being asked to deal with the intellectual question and having the phones out and looking at the greek text and what have you but he didn't like actually asking anyone asking what's going on in your life the issue is always to take the intellectual question and to find a way to refer it to the fact that there's a reality of Jesus Christ who calls us into life. That why question can be very helpful because it does get asked of us as though the world were indeed ordered. Nobody who asks of you the question, why do bad things happen to good people? No one actually believes that the world is entirely disordered, that chocolate teapots will swim and that pigs will fly. Why is the cry of the human heart for an answer when the human heart already in its guts and uh, knows part of the answer, that there is an order? that we expect the world to behave in predictable ways. Why should we if there is no God? So when we face the why question, thank God that we are facing that question from another person. Just as the psalmist poses it as a question to which, in verses 5 and 11, there will be an answer finally. When and where and why, and then lastly the question who? I said earlier, God is the towering figure in this psalm, even though he is absent from the answers. The dialogue of the psalmist is with himself, with his soul, not with God. Yet God is represented here. The psalmist begins with the longing for water, and he gets water. Boy, does he get water. Verse 7, The roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. God is actually against him. Up on the heights in the Golan, where the Jordan River begins in waterfalls and roaring, deep calls to deep. The depth of the pain of the psalmist meets the literal depth of waters uh, of Jordan, It feels to the psalmist as though God's own waters of death have broken over him. Not the water that brings life, but the water that brings death. And yet, it goes straight into verse 8. All your waves and breakers have swept over me by day, the Lord directs his love. And only in verse 8 do we read the Lord. There. There it is in its little capitals that the translators use as a substitution for the personal name of God, Yahweh. God is all over the psalm, but there only in verse 8 do we get the name of God, by which he is known. It's as though it's it's the hinge, the focus of the psalm. Now, the love that's spoken of is not the feeling, but the absolute and faithful commitment to be loyal, There is from God the unbreakable heart to the relationship, even if the psalmist is far away. It actually feels to him that God has overwhelmed him in the waters of death, yet the one who has overwhelmed him is the Yahweh whose commitment is unbreakable, such that he will sing, uh, second part of verse 8, sing in the night to the God of his life, Threatened by death, he sings to the God of his life. Both things are true. It's not that one overwhelms the other. He holds them in the psalm, still in tension. There is this experience of death, but there is also that recognition of life. The refrains in verses 5 and 11, look to the day when there will be resolution but it's not yet. It's not now. I will yet praise him. I will get back to Jerusalem to praise the one who is my Savior and my God. Now, it would be so easy to look at verses 5 and 11 and say, isn't that marvelous that there are these difficulties in life, and yet God resolves them, and we know that we will yet praise him, our Savior and our God. And you can go to, to Psalm 43 and go to the end of that one, and you see again the same uh, set of verses. The truth is that in the Psalms, we don't know how it will turn out. Well, how, what do we do with the tension? It's Sunday and it's church, so the answer must be Jesus. And at one level, that's true. We do not have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. We come today, this morning into the presence of the living God who has promised to be present by his Spirit, by the Spirit of his Son, when two or three are gathered together. That's true. And yet if it's only that, that is too easy. Because this is still the cry of the present life in which bad things happen and the questions are asked of us, asked of us and often enough by us. There will be days when the answers don't come when we're caught up in this tension and we don't find a resolution. Days when we will actually want simply to be here, where prayer has been valid and where brothers and sisters reinforce our confidence as we hear them singing songs that we may not be feeling like much ourselves. But when answers won't come, we face a choice. Do we or don't we? Read ourselves into verses five and eleven, do we or don't we put our hope in God? You know the old game of pulling the petals off a daisy. she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not there's no resolution in this psalm to ha- w- which will be the last petal on the daisy? Does God love me? does God love me not? Is it going to be the, the waves and breakers of death, or is it going to be he directs his love and, his, uh, and uh, his song is with me. The point is that the psalmist is the one who resolves it by a decision. God does not step in and make it all right. That The psalmist resolves it by saying, put your hope, to addressing his own soul, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. It's not that he takes credit for that. He knows he can only do it because God will direct his love, express his commitment. But the psalmist is the one who faced with the tension, faced with the choices, whether it's the Staplefords and a, a son whose life is threatened, or whether it's any of the other concerns that brought us here today. It is a simple agonizing sometimes demanding always, but fundamentally simple decision. I will, I will, I will yet praise him. I resolve that, I, that the last petal will be his commitment to me and my commitment to him. That is how this will end. Even in the face of the wheres and the whens and the whys and the whos, in all the questions around me, I will be loyal because I know that he has been and will be. And that is signaled to me in the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Let's take a moment first to pray for all those in our lives who put to us the question, where is your God? Why has this happened? And Lord God, then we pray for ourselves. We acknowledge that we don't have easy answers. That though we may know that the answer is Jesus, we still find ourselves caught in the tensions that the psalmist expresses. And we ask that with that greater confidence that Jesus shows us, of the love of God and your loyalty expressed to us in an ultimate way. We may, by your Spirit, find that determination to live in loyalty to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name.